right, yes, hello and welcome to Long Ball Football, uh, episode 10 of our podcast. Uh, as you've probably noticed from the title already, it's not going to be our usual episode. We've got a uh, great interview with Jamie Farr coming up, uh, which we'll get stuck into uh, very soon. But how you been, Bonnie? You okay? I'm very well, thanks, yeah. Really enjoyed the interview with Jamie. It was nice to have um, someone who knows what they're talking about on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but no, yeah, no, he, he was... It's really knowledgeable and it was great to be able to ask someone some questions and like go in a bit more depth from some players that we've sort of touched on doing these podcasts. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a good opportunity as well to to sort of explain what, what we're trying to do with some of these episodes. Obviously, we've got our kind of weekly format when the league's on, talking about the games of the week and uh, the news of the week and stuff like that. But we're also trying to spread out and do some more feature type episodes. So as we'll come on to, this is a, a feature episode about uh, Osbelenenses and... Um, awful situation they found themselves in uh, over the last couple of years and exactly as you say Barney it's, it's good to get someone who knows what they're talking about honestly because we're here trying to learn as much as we can week in week out and just kind of trying to discover all the stories and stuff but um, yeah it was really nice to get someone on who's been uh, working in the game for a few years. Yeah and I think with these um, I mean particularly the last two weeks with the we've had sort of real mixture we've had a few international games some meaning something, some not meaning stuff. And then we've also had the attack of the Portugal weekend just gone as well. And to be honest, I sort of, you know, I I'd lost focus a little bit on the league, I, I guess, because, you know, there wasn't so much going on. I feel like the attack of the Portugal games were quite interesting, though, in terms of um, there was only one real thrashing, really, wasn't there? It was um, Sporting uh, winning 7-1. Yeah, that game stood out, stood out for me as well. But you're, you're right, it was only one real thrashing, I think. It's nice to watch a bit of cup football because there's so many teams that um, you know we're not too familiar with going down the leagues and stuff. So uh, the result that stood up for me, for example, was um, I believe yeah I believe third division side UD Leria beating uh, Premier League strikers Porto Menens one 0 So that was a bit of a uh, cup upset. Uh, and also I saw that uh, Braga were playing Trofens. And after we've been talking about Paulinho Barney. Uh, I remember that Trefens were one of the teams that he started at. So that must have been a... I don't know if he featured, actually, but that must have been a nice game for him. Yeah, and then the only other game that I saw, uh, caught my was... Um, I talked about a few podcasts ago when the draw for this round was made. Uh, Riav's game against Moncal. We were like, you know, there were at least a few leagues below Riav. And uh, they got their goal. And they only lost 2-1. So like a, a not mm. a bad performance from them. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the main thing I got from it this weekend is that it was actually surprisingly tight. You know, there was uh, quite a few games going to extra time. Uh, a couple went to penalty shootouts. Um, yeah, Victoria Gibraltar went to penalty shootout. Yeah, and a long penalty shootout as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Bruno Varela was the hero in that game. It sounded like they needed a bit of a uh, great escape to get out of that one. Yeah, so interesting. I think the next round's going to be a bit more interesting because, well, like we said, most of the Premier League teams got through. Um, but there's still a few uh, smaller teams in there, and of course, as well, there was there was a, there obviously would have been a bit of um, squad rotation for these cup games. But then also we're faced with the prospect now of um, a few players coming back from international duty with knocks, or in some cases, uh, COVID as well. Darwin Nunes, obviously, a big one. Yeah, Darwin Nunes, uh, a Delta Apt announced today as well. So that's two players for Benfica. I think Julian Weigel as well was it? So Benfica. Well, he wasn't in the Germany well. squad, was he? No, I think he was just out and about. <laughs> <laughs> don't know what he was up to but that's going to be interesting because um, obviously Benfica have played their cup game I mean they only won that 1-0 as well but they've got the Rangers game on Thursday yeah big game for um, them. 
So I think there's talk of uh, Walshman and Severovich starting for the first time together. Well, I mean, there's um, an interesting question for you, buddy. What do you think of Severovich? Because he's got he's got more goals than Darwin Nunes in the league this season. He's only been coming off the bench. Do you think there's, he's been slightly underrated so far? Yeah, definitely. And also um, the fact, wasn't last season he was rumoured of moves away? I thought he was out the door. Yeah. Um, and then obviously they've sold Vinicius, um, kept him. Orgezus has obviously put a bit of faith in him. And he hasn't failed. Um, he hasn't let him down at all. Uh, some important goals as well, particularly the, the last game against Rangers. It's uh, it's strange to think by, and I'm not sure whether you knew this, but I mean, Seferovic only a few seasons ago, within the last uh, three seasons, I think, was a Premier League top goal scorer. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, so you I know. mean, well, it doesn't really surprise me. He's obviously a, a lethal finisher. I think he, he, you know, he can take his goals well. Um, and definitely one of the best better strikers in the league for sure and it's nice to have that as a sort of if Dar- as Darwin's out fall back on I think he's a bit of a kind of unpopular style of striker do you know what I mean he's not um, graceful he's not super quick he's not really a glamorous player but his ability is you know undeniable no he's certainly a, a really decent player I still think it's going to be a tough game though I think I feel like Rangers are in a real bit of run of form and they'll have real confidence in that last game because they probably should have won that to be honest they're flying in the Scottish Premiership, aren't they? I think they're 11 points ahead of Celtic at the moment. Yeah, I know they're absolutely smashing it. Gerard's doing a really good job. Um, and of course, we've got uh, Porto Marseille as well in the Champions League. They're obviously looking to repeat that excellent win um, last time, uh, the 3-0 win. I've seen talk, Albert, of um, people starting to say that Manang Sar sort of cemented his place in that um, back line now. I don't know what you think of that because I haven't seen anything that's really impressed me so far. I'm not sure why he would sort of be nailed on to start. I'm sure he's a good player. Like he's a young player as well. I think he'll be a great, good defender. He'll have a great career. But yeah, he's not shown anything too amazing to warrant a definite starting place in that defence. I mean, I know they've been a bit shaky. And obviously, Pepe's still out, I believe. So there's places up for grabs. But I think once if Pepe's fit, I think there's two better centre-backs in that team than him. Definitely, I agree with that. And I think um, Meccano's sort of almost back from injury as well, so whether he would sort of force his way into that back line as well. Uh, mainly, just many, I assume, because of his experience and because uh, they have looked a little shaky when um, Pepe hasn't been in that back line. But uh, you texted me during the week, which I... I <laughs> about uh, Carrasca. Um, I think he played in the tackle of the Portugal, didn't he, um, at the weekend? Mm, yeah. But I'd completely forgot about him. Um, yeah. And surprised he hasn't been given more game time. I mean, he's not in the champion. He's not in the Champions League squad, so he won't be featuring against Marseille. But surely they've got to be given more game time in the league. I mean, I just don't get it. Like, why, why sign him if you're not going to play him? They've got how many right backs have they got now? They've got Manafar, Nanu, Carassa, and uh, obviously uh, Corona can play right back. Well, they have been playing him right back, even though it's not his best position. It's just bizarre. Like, why bring him in if you're not gonna if you're not gonna play him? Yeah, I've got I've got no idea, um, and I I'm still surprised he wasn't in that Champions League squad for me. I think um, an experienced player, and uh, he definitely proved himself last season. I feel. Yeah, and the more the more options they have at right back, the more opportunity they have to free up Corona to go play further up the pitch. They started with him at right wing back against Manchester City, and I thought he was wasted out there. I understand that playing five at the back is important if you're going to play against a better team, but you also have to weigh that up with the fact that. If you're playing against a much better team, your chances to attack are going to be limited and you need your best attackers available for those few chances that you do get. 
And I'm not sure if Nanu could do that. I think Nanu's similar in Corona in terms of like, I think when he was at Maritimo, he always had someone behind him and it was that attacking threat that was sort of better for the team. It's just sort of like getting that balance out. Like, I think so far it's been quite clear that Porto haven't been able to balance their defence at all and, and attack. And, and that's why they've dropped so many points this season. Well, there's rumours of Hulk coming back. I wonder if he'll save their season. I'd love to see that. I would absolutely <laughs> love to. Another one, Albert, who... Well, I, it, this goal was shared around on a Twitter, wasn't it? Um, Platter from Sporting Lisbon getting a, a really nice goal for Ecuador. I think he got two in a game he played, even coming on as a sub. I I'd just assumed he'd been injured this whole time. That's why he hadn't featured for Sporting. Um, he's clearly like a young player with great raw talent. Like the, You know, he's got a powerful shot as well and really skillful. But yeah, I'm just surprised he hasn't got that start yet. Ruben Album must have his reasons for sure. But um, I wonder if he'll start featuring a bit more with this, uh, a few more games coming up. Well, I think it's probably just as simple as they've got so many good attacking options at the moment. I was, I've just seen a stat today about Nuno Santos, you know, someone who wasn't even starting every game, and he's managed to get in his last seven games, he's got five goals and five assists. I mean, Jovanka Rao's been chipping in with goals. Obviously, we've talked about Pote. This guy's having a season of his life, so they've got a wealth of kind of creative attacking players. What they need, I mean, we've talked about Sporar getting better. But what they need is that uh, out-and-out striker, really. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I saw the the attack of the Portugal game. They still had quite a strong team. There was a, there was a sort of a mattering of youngsters in there, but they still went with a quite strong strong te- uh, squad. But it, it was sort of both, really, the youngsters and the first team both getting goals. I mean, um, I think Brangaga was on there. Uh, Pedro Marcos getting uh, two goals as well. Yeah, I think and uh, I think Inacio as well, a young centre back, uh, getting a goal there. I really just like the way Almiron is trusting his youngsters, and I think we will see more of them throughout the season in the league for sure. When because uh, he has he has been quite set on his um, fairly set on his starting team, particularly in the back line and midfield. But no, I I, I think there's some really exciting youngsters in that squad who I'm really keen to see more of as the season, season progresses. Right, well, even in another week without any Premier League action, there's still so much to talk about. But we're going to crack on with uh, the main feature of this episode, which is our interview with Jamie Farr. Uh, we got Jamie on to chat about a topic that I've wanted to learn more about for such a long time, uh, about how uh, Osbelenenses ended up splitting into two teams. There's obviously one team in the Premier League, Osbelenenses SAD, who we barely really talk about Barney because they're pretty forgettable, to be honest. But we wanted to get to the bottom of this story because it was... A totally fascinating story. So yeah, without any further ado, we're going to get straight into that and we'll see you on the other side. Right, well, we're delighted to welcome the first ever guest to Longball Football, Jamie Farr. Thank you so much for joining us, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Pleasure, pleasure. Um, you're joining us during the international break, so we were discussing this earlier. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Are you pro or anti-international break? Because I've realised recently that a lot of football fans really detest the international break. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a divisive issue, isn't it, really? I think um, what's, probably, what's so poignant now about the debate is that it does seem a bit... Uh, needless in terms of the sheer logistics of getting people from all across the planet to come together and play football it seems a bit uh, backward in that sense but um yeah i guess you know it's it, on its own terms it's just as much as a necessity as 
the returning um, league action from across the world. So it's it's hardly surprising because you know at the end of the day there's these big you know big money and big business still behind it. So yeah, just got to sort of get on with it really. When the international breaks on, Jamie, do you sort of do you keep an eye on a particular country or do you like try and follow some of the players are playing in Liga Nos? Um, yeah, well, I yeah tend to sort of um, yeah you have to kind of keep track of um, the varying countries of where these guys are going off to represent, and that's you know in, in these days that it can be wildly different across all, all continents. So um, yeah, there's quite a few interesting ones to keep an eye on, and uh, the national team as well. But um, yeah, sort of keep my hand in a little bit with some of the other stuff. So I sort of focused a bit more on the uh, the Nations League this uh, this break. So I was sort of covering and uh, observing like the Croatia and France and and Sweden amongst a few others. So yeah, you sort of just try and you t- try and have a little breather from it all. But um, yeah, you got, got to track uh, the various uh, wheelings and dealings from everyone uh, across across the world. I was really surprised um, the Porter men's goalkeeper, is he like the Jap- Japan's number one goalkeeper? Is it Gonda? Yeah. I, I hadn't seen him play this season and then I suddenly saw he was there playing for Japan I thought, and he hasn't got a start for Porter men's. It just seemed a bit strange. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a, that's kind of strange situation all, all across the board, really, their goalkeeping situation because they've basically got the same sort of three keepers who were their kind of top three. And the, the guy they're using uh, this season, I think Samuel uh, Samuel Portugal, funnily enough, <laughs> it's suddenly gone from complete third choice to, to first choice. And, and yeah, Gonda, it looked oh, like yeah. Gonda was going to leave and it just hasn't happened. And But yes, yeah, the uh, international selectors obviously aren't too bothered. But <laughs> Yeah, it's a strange one with Sam with Samuel because um, we did a little thing last week where we picked our 11 of, of the season so far. And I was really close to picking him because... I've been really impressed with how he's played so far, and it's it's incredible for him, as you say, to go from to go from third choice to first, uh, and he's been really fantastic so far this season. Who have you been impressed with most, really? Have there been any particular teams or players that have that have stood out for you so far? Sort of in terms of how the season's gone, I think the obvious one would be to say Sporting have been started off kind of you know almost quietly impressive in the sense that they were getting results early on, but weren't particularly playing that well or or particularly eye catching football but I've just sort of yeah just quietly gone about it and capitalised on Benfica and Porto in particular kind of messing up in recent weeks and um, and in the past couple of games I think they've they've managed to now marry up the, the performances as well as getting the results because I think ultimately especially a team like Sporting winning without playing well was only going to last so long for them so the fact that they, they're now starting to perform at, at a higher level is sort of a real source of optimism for, for the fans. And uh, on that note, I'd probably say one of the one of the best players has been uh, the young fullback, Nuno Mendes, who's been touted for quite a while being a big talent of the academy. But it's it is really pleasing to see that, you know, kind of for once, really, sporting, uh, Sporting's manager... Uh, and and the club as a whole, or, you know, they're trusting him to to blood in and, and actually play these youngsters because some of the young talent that they've had on the books, even in the past few years, it, 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 you know, it's, it's been pretty criminal that they haven't used them and just and and you see them flourish elsewhere and you just think, and some of the players that Sporting actually you know spent sort of 
actual money on to play instead of them is is it was staggering really so it's really pleasing to see not only that but but to see because you know there's so, so many players are, are given this high billing and they're linked with the, the the biggest clubs in the world from such an early stage and sometimes you know they they've left a, a team like sporting without having regular football you feel like they're not really prepared to to make that next step when they inevitably do so it's nice to see someone like him you know on on that first step to living up to uh, his potential and learning his you know learning his trade really because he's playing week in week out his performances haven't been perfect and and they never will be at his age so i think he's he's someone who's definitely sort of progressing very nicely i'd say and what about um, at the lower end of the table? Has there been anyone who's caught your eye in terms of or surprised you this season? Well, um, I guess surprised in the sense of not quite achieving yet would be someone like Bovista because you know they invested very heavily, got these these new injection of of cash, and I guess on you know on one hand it's perhaps not not that surprising that they're underperforming given all the new players and maybe, you know, maybe they just need a bit more time, but it's just interesting when you, when you see their record this season, um, only one win, which was convincingly in their hardest game. Incredible. And um, yeah, they just look so flat against uh, Ferenc in their, in, in their follow-up being carried by uh, Angel Gomez at the moment. And yeah, I, I, like I say, I guess obviously they just need a bit more time to gel and lots of players coming from different leagues and uh, readjust uh, to the pace of everything. But um, yeah, I've been, been surprised how bad they've been. Conceded a, a lot of goals because uh, they've got some, some decent defenders, uh, certainly on paper. Hmm. And, I, and I like the goalkeeper too, uh, Leo Jardim. I think oh, yeah. he's, a, he's a decent keeper. So yeah, I, I've, I've been surprised that they've been this, this slow. Well, as you say, Angel Gomez has been... The shining light, really. So many Manchester United fans on social media and stuff, keeping an eye on his performances and, you know, just gutted that they let him go. I suppose that brings me on to something that we we talk about a lot already, and that's the English players uh, in this league. It's always exciting as an English football fan to see a youngster move abroad. In the last few years, we've seen it a lot with Germany, and now we've got Angel Gomez, albeit on loan. But the team that intrigues me then is Vittoria Gimaraes. Obviously, they started with Marcus Edwards, and now they've got a couple more, Issa Suleiman, uh, Jacob Maddox. Obviously, uh, Marcus Edwards has stood out. What do you make of the other two, if you've seen them? Because Issa Suleiman has been getting quite a good run of games. Yeah, I think he's someone who's definitely just steadily improved. Um, got his chance after the restart. And um, yeah, I think he's I think he's just kind of grown with confidence uh, as he's gone on. I think he and, and the team haven't quite hit top form yet. Mm-hmm. Probably, you know, that many factors at play, one being... They've experienced quite quite a big turnaround in terms of personnel, and then they've been disrupted by a change of coach already, having changed coach in the summer. So it's kind of a bit all a bit disrupted, bit disjointed. That back four seems to this season change constantly. I feel like maybe about eight players have played, have started games. Maybe Jacob Maddox, I haven't seen too much of. I know he got a sort of got a surprise start a few weeks ago. But yeah, I think he was on Chelsea's books. Yeah, his club history is quite its quite bizarre, actually. It's, it's obviously he was on the books of Chelsea mainly, but then he spent from January until the end of last season on loan at Southampton, mm. which is just bizarre because I don't think anybody even knew that he was there. Uh, he played he played pretty well in his, in his one start. Uh, I just wonder, 
because it seems like Vittorio Guimaraes have made a point of now signing three English players. What do you think their aim is with that? The pessimistic side of me thinks perhaps it was brought in to make Marcus Edwards feel more comfortable. But then I'd like to think that at least one Portuguese club is looking to emulate what some German clubs have done by bringing in English youngsters and benefiting greatly from it. Definitely. I, 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 would, I would say that that would more than likely be a factor. I think, yeah, that, that seeing their own success with what happened with Edwards, because I guess in some, some respects, some of these European markets have been either slow or just reticent to, to, to sign English players. As, as you say, it's growing up watching football, no one really seemed to play their trade abroad from this country. Uh, and now it's become more, more common. And like you say, Edwards and Sancho... Uh, are two of the biggest exponents of that. So, yeah, maybe it's a kind of slight shift in terms of um, thinking these players uh, can adapt and, and, and maybe want to adapt as well, because I think that's potentially been a stumbling block is whether players are able to and have the desire to escape that kind of home comfort. But, yeah, we're seeing more and more players thrive. So, and particularly, you know, someone, you know, someone like Maddox and uh, and and Suleiman as well. I think they weren't getting, you know, any any kind of taste of football above, you know, their sort of under twenty three levels or maybe ten minutes in a in a league cup game here and there. So while the standard obviously can never match something like the Premier League, you know, I think that that week to week intensity of playing constantly it can't do anything but improve your game, especially with a team like Victoria like they did last year, they've got a chance, obviously next season, of, of playing in Europa League as well. So it's a sort of situation, uh, sort of platform, which which benefits both parties, really. Jamie, we touched on the last podcast about um, Edwards and his England career and how we sort of, uh, sort of understood, but also a bit surprised he wasn't in the England under 21 squad. Do you think that the Portuguese League is sort of, do you think there's anything in the sort of Portuguese League not being seen as, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Prestigious. Yeah, as prestigious as the other leagues, and sort of, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's, it's, it simply can't. While it's occupying, I think, I think it, they're currently sixth in the yeah. kind of coefficient rank. I think that gap, even to France, is is still fairly sizable, even if the bigger teams, likes of Benfica and Porto, obviously are much closer to the top sides in some of those other leagues. But really, I, d- I think there's still quite a gap. I do view someone like Edwards as the sort of player he's shown himself to be and I think his potential and his kind of, uh, you know, the fact that he trained at Tottenham and had such a high reputation. I think his time at, in the Portuguese league will and probably should be, you know, quite finite. And I think he's not outgrown the league as such, but I think... He's, he strikes me as the type of player who, you know, he ne- he needs to be challenged and keep sort of making steady progress. You know, I don't think, you know, he was linked with a return to, to Spurs and, and, and I think United as well, which again, I think would probably be too extreme. But I think it's, this will probably be his last season. Unless, I mean, potentially if he joined one of the, one of the biggest teams in the division, but I think I get the I get the impression it's it's been a good chance, as I said before, to just play week in week out because he did struggle for a few months initially last season, and then once he hit the ground running, yeah, he just his trajectory was really severe, and, and he suddenly looked like one of the best players in the league, which I which I think he is now. So yeah, I do think there is a slight I guess stigma is too 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 harsh a word, but 
especially if they're not playing for Porto or, or Benfica who, or, or, or Sporting, who retain, you know, high opinions across many followers of European football in general, I think almost labelled as other, like he played, you know, it's the, the stark reality of it is that Vittorio Guimarães will be a team that I think lots of people would have heard of and seen now and then, but obviously they just can't come close to matching uh, the, the other big guys' profiles. Yeah, well, a run in Europe last year. Was it last year? A run in the Europa League could have yeah. hurt their chances. I mean, they got he played quite well against Arsenal, I thought. Mm, um, yeah. And just while we've got you here, uh, just to ask you about um, one of our other British favourites, of course, Ryan Gould, and to compare him perhaps slightly to Marcus Edwards, there's probably much less chance of Edwards staying in Portugal and going to a, a Porto or a Benfica or something, but... So me and Barney have discussed is Ryan Gould, who is taken to the country and the league so well. Uh, I've seen interviews with him speaking fluent Portuguese, uh, and he really seems to love his time there. What do you think his trajectory will be? Because he's a young man; he's still twenty, only twenty-four. What do you make of him, and where do you think he might go next? Well, I think he's he is the a clear example of of what we're talking about in terms of how his career got harmed. Is that he could just never find that level to play week in week out for for one reason or another things kept getting in the way couldn't break through at sporting he went on loan to victoria setubal he just sort of broken in a quarter of the way or so through the season and then the two clubs completely fell out i don't know if you remember the instant and just sporting uh, reacted very angrily angrily and uh, instantly recalled him and then I think they tried, I think this was in January, and then they tried to loan him out to, to Chavez, I think it was. And then it didn't happen. So basically, he just ended up rotting in the, in the yeah. B team yeah. for a, half a season. And then just, yeah, just a series of failed loan spells. So when he dropped down with Ferenc, I think, whilst it seemed surprising and, and he seemed far mm-hmm. too good uh, for that level, which he ended up proving to be, it at least gave him the chance to just play constantly, uh, which I think is all he was kind of craving. So, yeah, it's kind of pleasing to see that he hasn't, well, his game hasn't necessarily stalled or regressed uh, in, in, any, in any way. And, yeah, as you say, it's quite admirable because he, uh, he does seem completely committed to certainly playing and being in Portugal. And I remember seeing an interview of him very early on after start, signing for Sporting and he sort of seemed to suggest that like it was a you know it was a it was a deal breaker he he really wanted to go abroad he didn't he didn't want to stay he wanted to expand his kind of horizons and game and whatnot but um in short I think he again I think he's far too good for for Ferenc and I've, I've felt that as soon as he you know even in the appearances he made for sporting all those years ago I think he's more than capable of playing for one of those big three or you know Braga someone like that where his game lies beyond that, difficult to say. Um, but I think, yeah, te- technically, I think he's, yeah, I think he's way up there with the best players in the league. We'll move on to the main reason we got you here uh, to talk about one of the clubs that actually me and Barney have neglected to speak about, really, Belenens, who in some iterations still play in the Primera Liga, but in a separate iteration, no longer play in the Primera Liga. It's a 
incredibly long and convoluted story. So before we get into the details of the financial difficulties and the eventual split uh, of Esbelenenge, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of an idea about who Belenenge are as a club, for those who might not be familiar with them. Uh, they're a team I'm sure a lot of people will have heard of because of their name, etc. Perhaps not one of the most successful clubs in recent years. The one thing I do know about them is that they are one of only two other teams to ever win the Portuguese top flight outside of Sporting, Benfica and Porto. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've... they've... And and in in that uh, in that kind of context, yeah, they 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 can can only be cons- considered an extremely historical uh, club in the country because, as you say, not only is there two teams uh, other than those three that have done it, but I, I think they've both only done it on one occasion as well. Yeah. So two two league titles in the in the history of the competition is pretty staggering, really. Even if it was, I think in, I think it was in the thirties. That Belenenses won thirties or forties, I think. Um, yeah, it's 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 quite a shame, really, because yeah, a historical club they had, or you know, depending on which which Belenenses we're talking about, have a, a, a great a great stadium uh, in Lisbon. And yes, yeah, so, and certainly when I uh, not long after I started um, covering and, and following the league, that they were in the Europa League group stage. They they seemed like uh, you know they they were. A club of that level that that should be challenging for the the top five, top six uh, positions in the league, and they sort of tended to do that. And then, yeah, two two uh, just over two years ago now, this seismic sh- shift and uh, disastrous kind of divorce between uh, the top echelons and top guys at the club has just resulted in this kind of nightmare, really. Well, you put it quite uh, poetically there. I enjoyed that. Um... But just to sort of bring us on to where they are now, obviously we've alluded to the fact that we've ended up with two clubs. There was a split between the business side and the uh, football side. Just to bring us up to where that was, heading into the 2018-19 season, the tragic thing is it was supposed to be their 100th year anniversary. Um, But it was the year that ultimately saw the demise of the traditional club. It's hard to know where to start really, but perhaps uh, you can help us understand because we're going to be talking about it a lot coming up. What is an SAD to a Portuguese football club? Why do they exist and, and how do they operate? Well, basically, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a privately run company, uh, which by legal definition, each club has to have kind of attached to it, if you like. They kind of finance the club, the team affairs. It's a move to encourage or, or at least display some sort of a sense of transparency as well, because they published their um, financial uh, results. The idea behind it is to avoid corruption in, in, in one sense and, and, and uh, yeah, be completely open to, to the public uh, whilst still backing, you know, what happens on the pitch as such. And yeah, so this is, this is a, an element of Portuguese football, which is, yeah, a prerequisite for running. So, so as such, they have a considerable say and there needs to be a good amount of give and take and teamwork between these kind of two bodies, uh, which is always going to be, always got the potential at least to be fractious considering that well, when it all boils down to it, you've got on one side, you've got money, and the other side, you've got football. And obviously, as we all know, those sort of two lines aren't always running in harmony. So this was a clear case where everything kind of went wrong and, and we're now still in the fallout of it. I think the conflict between the, the two bodies had been going on for some time. There was all, all manner of 
things going on in terms of like money not being owed, certain breaches of contract. I think there was an issue, general issue with the ground ownership and even like the changing facilities, I think, weren't up to scratch in there. I saw a thing about um, they said they owed the SED owed thousands, like 45 months worth of electricity and water and gas bills. And like, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. There wasn't even hot water. And uh, I think uh, at one stage and it was right in the middle of, uh, of the league season. I think they, they had it like the, the hot water was turned off for, in the preparation for a game, as I recall, <laughs> really petty kind of stuff. Like uh, we, we which ultimately everyone came out losing. So <laughs> I was quite shocked by I think his name's Rui Pedro Suarez, the head of the SAD. Yeah. When when they finally split up and statements that were put out, they just seemed so out of touch with I think I'm alright to understand that a lot of fans just stayed with the original OS Berlin as the original team. Yeah. But then the statements from Rui Pedro Suarez is sort of when they split, it's like we're the original team, we've got all this history, it just seemed miles away from the reality of what was going on. I don't know if Albert, you were going to ask this later, but it was about the fans really. And what's the situation with the fans? Do we still have people going with the SAD or like is it are they all gone to the OS? It does seem uh, a sense that certainly at least a very good portion has, has gone with you know the team down down the leagues as such. That was one of the issues that, which really highlighted the uh, the split was the SAD team in top flight ended up moving moving stadium and Benelens has you know kind of struggled to fill their original stadium anyway and the fact that they moved to a bigger one just really kind of highlighted just how you know how how much of a dearth of support there was because the Stadio Nacional would have been largely empty anyway let alone having essentially lost a big portion of support you know the original true team if, if, if you want to call it that watching games uh at the new venue with the new team if you like it's just it's just kind of quite eerie because you've got this huge stadium which is you know obviously you traditionally used for the for the for the cup final so um it just highlighted it even more that that no one's no one's won out of this scenario and 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 Belenenses SAD have just ended up with even less support than they had before, which was, as I say, like relatively meagre, which is not uncommon in terms of the the smaller sides, if you like. But um, yeah, quite quite sad, quite sad to see, if you <laughs> pardon the pun. The one thing that sort of indicated to me just which side the fans had taken. Uh, I'm not sure if my numbers are 100% correct, but I remember reading somewhere that. On the first weekend when Ospel Energies played, the original team played their first game in their new league, something like the sixth tier. They had 6,000 fans turn up you know, to their stadium for a sixth tier game. Uh, incredible support. And on the same weekend, mm. I think Belenens SAD played a pre-season friendly against Sporting Lisbon. I think only a few hundred fans turned up and they lost 8-1. So it, it kind of showed... For me, you have this weird dichotomy now between, and I suppose it asks quite a philosophical question about what matters to a football fan, about identity, and you know, it was interesting to hear you use words like the true team and the new team being soulless, because on the one hand, you've got this team who, while they might not have the, you know, they're not in the Primera Liga, they have the identity, they have the original badge, they have the original name, they have the stadium, and it seems for that reason... Um, that's why most of the fans return to them. And on the other hand, you have this kind of new entity 
which somewhat mimics the old one with a with a similar name and a similar badge. I know there was a whole legal proceeding which meant they had to they weren't allowed to use certain uh, images from the original badge. Um, but crucially, they kept their place in the Premier League and they kept the players. It can't have been a totally easy choice though because this new team it contains the players that the fans have been cheering on largely mm. for the last two seasons. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, while I guess it does feel, you know, some somewhat soulless in, in some degree, these are, you know, these are still the club, the club, uh, the, the playing staff and, and the management are still made up of, you know, top pros and, and who know, know what they're doing more often than not have continued to give full effort on the pitch and, and at least do that kind, you know, the, the club's name as a whole, if you like, proud because, I, I, you know, I didn't really notice. And in, in fact, the season after, because you know, it happened in in the summer. That that season, I I, I really feared for the the team because I thought, you know, this is this is something, you know, these off off field matters can can so easily lead onto the pitch. And I think they might have started that particular campaign not brilliantly. And I thought, you know, okay, they're going to be in a real battle here. And they ended up sort of very comfortably finishing mid-table, as I recall, and having a pretty decent season, and and weren't a million miles off having a, a crack for for a late sort of European run. And I think that's to their credit that they've managed. You know, a lot of these players and 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 the staff have managed to at least try and push this aspect to one side. Whether that rings true or is to any benefit or bonus to any fan who now follows the the team in the lower division you know who knows that that that's that's tricky to say but i think it's you know in that sense i feel easier for an outsider to sort of say it, it feels like it's still a team worth worth following and and the players you know seem to fight for the cause but um yeah it's it, it would have been a, a very tricky decision because i know as you know being a football fan myself you know, in, in my head because i i've often thought about that predicament and what my, you know what i might have done um and you know i would i'd, I'd certainly like to feel uh, i i would i would say i probably would have done the same and 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 followed the the true team because it's because that you know that is, you know that's the badge that's 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 the history that's 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 where that is even if you have to sacrifice the level of football. But um... I've never thought of it from the players' point of view. I think that's a really good point because the, yeah, the fact that they were able to get themselves up and put in a good shift in the next season is remarkable. But I mean, I was wondering if were any players did any players make a sort of stand after the split and like uh, get a move away or like um, or any like coaching staff stick loyal to the as I recall, I don't. Yeah, I think this. I think the playing staff largely stayed together. The thing about the Portuguese league in in general is, is you know, teams like that is often tricky to notice because more and more uh, year on year, the, 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 these kind of teams have a massive over overhaul in playing staff every summer. Anyway, whether that might have factored into some of the fans kind of going with the the the, the true balances, if you like. In the sense that you know the team kind of changes every year to, to a degree, so it's not like they're leaving their kind of heroes behind, sort of thing. Whether that was a factor, I, I don't know. But um, and and as and and likewise, the man- management changes, yeah, <laughs> completely constantly. It's 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 insane. So I guess there, I guess the players might have been aware of that aspect that you know you just 
you just got to get on with it, really. And then they, they, they've just shown that they, they were good professionals and, and they did well. I mean, they did, they had a, a, a struggle. You know, they struggled last season. But again, you know, there was a complete turnaround in, in near enough in, in, the, in the playing staff. So, hmm. yeah, I think, I think the, the players can, can, uh, can earn some credit for that, I would say. Jamie, um, this is not going to be a question. This is going to be a sort of crazy hypothesis that I've got. Uh, so p- please feel free to tell me that I'm being stupid, but I want to put this to you and see what you think. Because when I think about the future of these two clubs, uh, the long-term future, not the short-term future, but for me, I can almost see more long-term prospects for the original for the original Belenenses team, despite them playing at such a low level, because of that fact that they've kept their identity. And from what I gather, they were promoted in their first season incredibly easily anyway so they've already gone up one tier they seem on track to do a similar thing they're playing pretty well in the league they're in at the moment and by keeping the stadium by keeping the fans on side for me if those fans stick with them for 10 years I'm you know I'm, I'm guessing here but that could see them back in you know the second tier perhaps you know a level of football that's perfectly respectable to support whereas you compare that to the Belenes SAD team They've already been through one court proceeding which said that they had to change the badge. They couldn't use uh, imagery from the previous badge. And I believe they've also been through a secondary court proceeding, which means they have to remove the name Belenenge from the team name. So for Mm. me, what you're going to end up with is, although this team currently, as you say, has the players to remain in the top tier, you're going to end up with this kind of strange new team with no identity that doesn't really give anybody any reason to support and for me, that's not really sustainable long term. So I can see that team, as soon as they start slipping down the leagues, if it happens, then the investment people have no fans to fall back on, etc. So, yeah, I don't know what you make of that. But for me, I can almost see more long term stability in the old team. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a really good point. Um, because, yeah, despite the fact that they've got a minimum amount of years they, they will have to play at these levels just because of the predicament they find themselves in. Let's face it, that as, as they are now proving, as you say, the quality of those lower leagues is is very low. Um, so with that kind of backing uh, and that kind of name, there should be no reason why they absolutely fly through those, those smaller leagues and should earn four promotions in a row or, or even five to get towards the second tier, which again is a competitive level but even then it wouldn't like it wouldn't be a a major surprise if you know hypothetically they they did make their way to the second tier and then and then again they would have they would likely have enough backing and they've got the name they've got the stadium to attract obviously not top players but the sort the sort of experienced (laughs) and decent players that are good enough and and management to get them out of the second tier and, and and then like you say then not not back to not back to normal obviously that would never be the case but then and suddenly you know the fans will certainly feel that that's worth it and 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 as you say that yeah we could have this unnamed ex-Belenenses <laughs> club you know who knows where they would be at that point it's 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 very difficult to envisage what the what the future would be and and how these kind of things would work but yeah i think i think that's a really good point that, that, that there's it certainly doesn't seem to be too much standing in benness's way of of flying up those those leagues it's just obviously frustrating that they're gonna have to 
wait sort of four more years before they can really put these kind of ambitions to reality. Well, I don't want to sound uh, flippant here, but I remember when Orient dropped down into the National League and we pretty much went from being a mid-table League One team. We won sometimes, lost sometimes, then to getting relegated twice in a row. And then suddenly we're winning games every week. And I know it's not what the fans want, but in all seriousness, you know, maybe there's not harm in having this kind of, if the fans are happy to stick by the team, this kind of German journey flying up the leagues. It reminds me, and I'm imagining in my head now, a situation where uh, us Belenenses play the, whatever the Belenenses SAD become in a match. It's just got Wimbledon versus MK Dons written all over it. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think that's obviously our best frame of reference, certainly in, in recent years for this whole scenario. And that's, I think, um, yeah, there are many parallels, uh, many parallels as to how that situation came about and and how certain people behaved in uh, in terms of what went down there because i think yeah most most supporters supported wimbledon because they kept the name and they dropped down the divisions but it was difficult to get behind this brand new team that had been invented let alone them moving to a sort of more obscure area of, of the country I guess that's the difference with this one, though, is that the new team's only 4.5 kilometres away from... So, like... Yeah, exactly, yeah. The dynamics yeah. in that area must be absolutely crazy. Yeah, very, very bizarre. Yeah, it'd be... Uh, yeah, it might have been easier to, to, to move further afield, but, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the Estadio Nacional was uh, available, and they, that seemed to be... Uh, didn't want to, I suppose I didn't have too far to move all their all their things and all their belongings but um and the players and players didn't have to move house i suppose that's a bonus but uh yeah the the prospect of those two facing each other and uh and obviously the higher up they get the league uh, as well suddenly then opens up the possibility of of meeting in the cups as well so yeah that that would certainly be uh, uh, well worth watching i think i think this might be harder to answer but uh, I'd look into the, the sort of ex-players who come came through at Belenenses in, in the past, and there's like Alessio Ruben Amorim and um, Andre Almeida recently. So like big players like who've gone to make big careers. I don't know if they've produced anyone recently, but the, and obviously that region of Portugal was you know produced some incredible talent. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is how it's going to work now with those two teams. If is is the SAD going to have more? financial backing and so able to have better youth facilities and youth academies or would the OS team have be able to sort of get these players in themselves as well no no that's that, yeah that's that's a that's a really good point because it's that that's part of the problem i think the true team is is now facing is that they the sad basically took um took control of the under 23 team which you know the Liga Revelação, I think it's called, uh, was just sort of coming up around that time as well, and is starting to, um, in its own terms, it started sort of flourishing or you know succeeding quite well, and producing a lot of sort of decent players, and and again allowing these players to play at a sort of relatively decent level, because Belenenses have got a. a I think their under twenty three team is quite decent, and and uh, past couple of managers they've had 
haven't been afraid to give them first team chances. I think at one stage they had uh, the manager, I think it was Pedro Rivero, took over the senior side having managed the under-23 team. So somewhat predictably, uh, and it was nice to see, he, he then kind of was more willing to use a lot of the players he'd worked with firsthand and, and give them opportunities uh, in the first team. Like I think Nil- Nilton Varela was one who's um, Sylvester Varela's uh, nephew, I think, was a, is, is a fullback who's got quite a bit of uh, promise, certainly for a team of that size. So it's not even the the, the problem there was is it's not even like the the original team had some of the promising youngsters to maybe take with them. The SAD team had the the entire crop, you know, had you know a, a field of potentially forty odd players. So they that the the, um, the original lot really had to kind of start from scratch. So they're having to rely, I guess, on their name because yeah, even even this season there's been a couple of kind of decent youngsters for the top flight team, uh, starting to make a couple of sub-appearances here and there. So that's, I guess, one one positive uh, outcome from this. We've covered quite a lot of the, the story now, but one one last thing that I just want to put to you is, we obviously mentioned the um, similarity with the case at Wimbledon and MK Dons. So to put this in a in the context of English football for a second, do you think something like the SAD system could work in England? Because I know we're, it's ironic to say that now because we're talking about a time when it failed spectacularly. But on paper, to me, it does still have some benefits. And if you put to Wimbledon fans, you can't change what happened to that club. But if you'd said to them, but you could still keep, you know, because I, I believe they did have to change their name. They went from, they went, you know, changed it to AFC Wimbledon. So if you could just put to them the one silver lining you get there is that you keep your identity, you keep your previous titles, you keep all of that stuff, they might accept it. There's some things in Portugal that I think might benefit the English game a lot. I mean, me and Barney did a discussion on uh, the Benfica presidential elections, something that's crazy to us here, right? You know, the idea of electing uh, an official, you know, can you imagine Manchester United fans electing essentially their new head of football, right? So I, I, wonder, I wonder whether you think it's a system, ultimately, that could work in a country like England. Well, I guess there's certain parallels to, with, with potentially, you know, a team like Man City, where you've they've, they've basically got the back, you know, the backing of I think it's just called the city, the city group or, or something like that, isn't it? I mean, ownership and financing is obviously becoming so much more commonplace that it's becoming rarer if you don't have that in in the top flight it feels so i was trying to think of it in those terms like city are often accused of this you know have like a lot of the these newer team not newer teams but the more recently successful teams like chelsea and city are acute, often accused by rival fans of like their history beginning very recently you know it's it's unfathomable that it could happen with a team like man city i think it would be beyond bizarre if, if, if something akin to what's happened with Belenenses has happened to them. So I guess that's a kind of long-winded way of saying to an extent, it feels like potentially teams are, you know, are sort of doing this. It's, I don't know whether the, the fact that it's Portuguese league regulation probably was a thorny issue in that the, the Belenenses separation, the fact that it was, you know, they had to do it. 
I don't know. I mean, yeah, this obviously this is a very bad example of, of, of how it can go down because the, the relations between the two bodies just become so fraught, which is a scenario that would, would, all, would always be possible, even if a, an SAD style system was implemented by, by the FA in this scenario. So it, feel, it, feels, it feels close to an inevitability that, you know, mm-hmm. one day soon, every big club will will be will be owned and and, and financed by a, a foreign body because certainly teams like City and Chelsea are, are proving how successful it can be and and both of those had a not lack of success before but you couldn't measure it their level of success against the, the success they achieved afterwards so in terms of the you know objectively what what the club the, those two clubs achieved after the, these cash injections you can't say it's anything other than a fantastic move for for both of their clubs. So, I guess it's a just a case of some clubs have got it extremely right, and some some like poor old Belenenses, it's it's gone very very badly. Right. Well, we've covered an awful lot about uh, Belenens today, but it definitely seems like we're only scratching the tip of the iceberg. I think I've just merged two metaphors there, but we'll go with it. Uh, we're only scratching the tip of the iceberg about the sort of goings on behind the scenes of Portuguese football but Jamie you've been an absolute fantastic help today we want to say a massive thank you for joining us and we'll just have to do another one where we, where we go deep into the business workings of Portuguese football or maybe just chat, chat games <laughs> definitely yeah I'd love to cheers Jamie yeah thanks Jamie